The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, Greek. It is Friday, April 8th, 5.05 p.m. Eastern Time. We are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to hang out with Vlad Davidson. Uh, It is so nice to meet you. Um, Person who I only know about because Ben has explained to me that you burned your passport. Uh, like it, with Thomas Ilvis, no with less. With Thomas Ilvis, who's one of our favorite, uh, our favorite members of the of the Greek chorus, and like, oh wow, oh that's really fun. Is that a picture of you and Thomas? Okay, Correct. this is excellent. We're gonna we're gonna have to maybe you're gonna have to maybe hold that up again in a second. But first, so um, all right, so Beth, let's start. Yeah, let's start with the who the hell is Vlad Davidson. Uh, we've got your bio on the on the show page. Uh, uh, you're, you have, I have to say, one of the most interesting bios of anybody we've had on the show recently. Um, you're you're like, a New Yorker. You're from <laughs> Odessa. You're Russian. You're Ukrainian. You're Jewish. Who the hell are you? I don't. I. It's complicated. I I barely know half the time. Also. I'm basically, uh, I'm like a 19th century rootless cosmopolitan, except I'm very <laughs> I was going to make that joke myself. Yes, uh, I, I, preempt, I, I preempt the criticism. I was born in Central Asia. I was born in Uzbekistan three weeks after the start of Perestroika. I'm a Perestroika baby. I was born to Ukrainian Jews who fled Hitler and one Russian grandmother from uh, a nomenclatura family uh she was a, a russian army officer's daughter she was born in, in batumi in georgia so for all four of my grandparents were born in different soviet republics i'm basically a belarusian ukrainian jew uh but i lived in moscow as a kid we immigrated to america when i was a little boy and my family uh we we grew roots in america i grew up in new york city although I, I, I have some education from other places. And I grew up in the diaspora, uh, in the Russian diaspora, and uh, in a media family. My, my father is a, a, a media man. My, my father is a, a, in, in the media. He uh, was in radio and television. I grew up in the diaspora, in the Russian diaspora, uh, and then I was educated in France and, and, uh, and uh, Italy and UK and whatever. Anyways, I married uh, uh, when my in my late twenties. I married a Ukrainian lady, a Ukrainian Jewish girl who I met as a student in Paris. In my twenties, in my mid twenties, I met a beautiful Ukrainian Jewish girl who was educated in France, and we started living in between France and Ukraine. And I slowly converted to uh, the Ukrainian diaspora, living in uh, France with my Ukrainian wife. We spoke Russian at home, uh, but we both know we, we both know French. Her French is perfect. My French is workable. Uh, she she's also a Ukrainian speaker. So we would go back and forth between speaking Russian and French in Paris, and I quickly became acculturated to Ukraine. And I spent twelve years reporting in Ukraine, and I ran a TV station in my uh, early thirties. Ukrainian Ukrainian TV station in my early 30s. And then when the war started, we returned to Ukraine and I reported from there and we started a magazine. So uh, as it happens, we also have European passports. We're very complicated. I won't tell you how many passports I have, but I have one less as of last week. Yeah, so I let's 
let's uh, build up to the burning because I think when, I know. We, when you have a fire, you want a crescendo to the fire. Yes. Ben's um, good at this type of thing. We have to trust him. Also, I just want to say like how much I love the idea of like this like Ukrainian, like Russian, New Yorker, like uh, Uzbeki um, couple hanging out in Paris trying to talk French. <laughs> you you are the second person I of my acquaintance who's uh, Jewish Ukrainian born in Uzbekistan. Ooh, um, uh, uh, a, a legal scholar friend of mine um, who writes for Lawfare sometimes. Um, What's his name? Her name. Uh, I don't. I, I don't actually. I, I want to be careful with people's privacy, so I'm happy to tell you offline. But I'd rather not. Uh, um, so, uh, I want to ask about your. So. The story you've just told is like super normal for Eastern European Jews of a certain generation and a little bit unusual for people of our generation. Correct. Um, right. and, um, and so, I mean, if we this was our grandparents' generation, uh, the story you just told makes all the sense in the world and, you know, borders moved, people moved. They're, you know, ended up in Paris, ended up in New York, you know. Um, how, before two weeks ago, tell me about how you constructed your identity. Were you an American of Russian descent? Were you a, 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 a Eastern European Jew? I mean, how, how did you think of, like, how did you describe yourself? It's all very confusing when you're younger. So it's all very confusing when you're from from everywhere, nowhere. When you're younger, but no, I, I grew up. I grew up uh, firmly rooted in in post-Soviet Russophone culture, and I grew up in a in a Jewish household, and I, I I had a firm sense of myself as a as a you know diaspora Russian, and I you know I studied Russian literature in university, and I. Knew a lot of Russian-speaking poets, and I translated poetry into English from Russian when I was in my early twenties. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the Russian intelligentsia in New York City, the Russophone intelligentsia in New York City, and I grew up in a fairly prominent uh, man's. You know, my, my parents were divorced, but so I, you know, I wasn't really growing up with my father. But my father's a prominent. Russian-American media guy and politician, and so I always knew that, you know, I was a Russian of a kind, but we were, we were Jewish and we were post-Soviet and we were born in Uzbekistan, so it's, you know, it's complex and, and it, it, no one really talked about the nuances so much in my Brooklyn youth in the 90s and the early aughts, or parsing out whether you were a Russophone, Jewish Ukrainian or Belarus Ukrainian or whatever it, 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 it didn't really matter. Okay, but but at wait, some can point... I ask an, can I ask a quick follow up? I just want to ask what neighborhood in New York do you grow up in? That right. actually will help me. Right, right in Bay, okay. and then or, and then once we got a little bit more money, we lived in chicer places. But I absolutely grew up in Brighton Beach. I Brighton Beach, the only neighborhood in the United States where you can buy kvass on the street. Um, so, that's right. So, yeah. so help me out though. You said you described at some point in your twenties converting yeah. to Ukrainian uh, heritage or or Ukra being a Ukrainian American. Uh, you you don't you're not a Ukrainian speaker. You married a Ukrainian, but you're still Russophone. Walk us through that identity shift. What is what, what what does it mean? I I had to learn Ukrainian in order to do my work, even though I don't I don't really speak it on TV or anything like that. I'm not I'm not saying my Ukrainian is perfect or even great, but I have to uh, I have to learn to read and 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 listen to and and know Ukrainian when I was and you know speak it basically uh, in order to do my work. And now I'm going to have to get my Ukrainian up to perfect, which. You know, I, I've just been a little lazy to get it up 
from 75 up to 100 percent because operating with at 75 percent capacity of ukrainian and being a native russian speaker i could do my work perfectly well in ukraine until now after this war i'm going to have to get my ukrainian up to perfect speed in order to uh be able to continue doing what i do as a ukraine hand which i think is really interesting Okay, so so talk about that conversion. You went from thinking of yourself as, you know, a product of so post-Soviet Russian uh, culture in the United States to being sort of post-Soviet Ukrainian in the United right. States or in Kiev. Uh, right. Walk us through that. What's the difference between those two identities? Well, look, um, look, I, I cast my obviously. What I've done is cast my lot with the Ukrainian political nation. And, you know, lots of people, lots of Russians are going to wind up doing the same. Uh, in fact, Russian speaking democratic culture, Russian democracy only exists in three places. It existed in St. Petersburg and Moscow in, in certain precincts and certain kitchens and certain institutions. It exists in the diaspora where I grew up in London, in Germany, in Tel Aviv in Brighton Beach, in San Francisco, a huge Russian-speaking diaspora. And it existed in Ukraine, the only place where millions of Russian speakers and ethnic Russians live in liberal democracy, however flawed, however, you know, whatever issues, corruption, whatever. The only place where liberal democracy existed outside of Russia in a liberal Russian-speaking democratic space was in Ukraine. So, you know, I slowly over 12 years cast my lot in with my wife and my Ukrainian friends and the Ukrainian political nation. And even though I don't have a Ukrainian passport yet, uh, eventually I'll, 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 after the war is over, I'll start the process on that. I even don't need to. I'm an American. I'm living in France. Uh, I, like other Russians of the diaspora, have had to make decisions about where I stand vis-a-vis the Putin regime, vis-a-vis being a member of a Russian diaspora. Uh, There are hundreds of thousands of people like me, and they're going to be making decisions. A lot of them aren't going to be as consequential as me as actually standing in front of a Russian embassy in Paris with Thomas Ilves holding the lighter. I mean, that's pretty radical. But there will be many thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Russians who will make certain decisions not unlike those in in the coming weeks. So tell us the story. You are living in Paris. You're married to a Ukrainian woman. You're yeah. not Ukrainian, but you've kind of emotionally converted to the Ukrainian yeah. cause. Russia invades Ukraine. How did you come to be with Tomas in front of Tomas, who's a frequent guest on and, and audience member of the show and um, and uh, a, a good friend, how did you come to be with him burning your Russian passport in front of the uh, Russian embassy in Paris? So the war begins. I'm sitting around high-end hotel lobbies in Kiev with the rest of the journal journalist pack, the, 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 the journal pack pack, as, as the saying goes. We're sitting around waiting for the wars to start. It was obvious that the war would begin soon enough. And, you know, I didn't really think it would be, I mean, deep down inside I knew, and I and I told people off the record that I thought it would be full scale. But I really, like other people, thought that it would be rational. They would just have a dirty war in the Donbass and in the South. I didn't think they'd go all out on a full scale attack against the entire country. I didn't think they would be foolish enough to try to take Kiev with an undermanned force without using their air force. I didn't, like like the Ukrainian government, by the way, I didn't think they'd be stupid enough to do this in that way with a delusional plan with unachievable objectives. Uh, you know, I'm not the only one that made that mistake. The defense minister of Ukraine also made that mistake, you know? So that was an understandable mistake to have made. You can't really predict that the Russians are going to be so delusional as to try to reach uh, unreachable objectives with an undersized manpower force. But the war begins, and it's the 25th, and my wife, who's back in Paris, calls me in Kiev. She's weeping, and she says, I want you to rip up or burn your Russian passport. Would you do that for me? And I didn't think about it. I said, yes, I will. And once I said I will, I, I had to do it. 
So you did it for your wife, not for, I thought you did it for Tom, Tomas. Like I thought, like, I'm like very, like, I feel, I feel a little bit like, you know, these types of ultimatums in a relationship are a little unhealthy, but like generally speaking, like, but, but like here I kind of get it. Um, but, uh, no, no, no. It wasn't an ultimatum. No, we're, we're, we're both, we're on the same wavelength. My wife and I, we're po we're totally on the same wavelength. It's not an ultimatum, I wouldn't say, you know. So, like, I mean, but also, like, what I mean. So, what, when you decided to go and do this, you decided it would be worthwhile to make it into a political statement, obviously, and to well, make yeah. it like a, a a moment of protest. And so, oh, like, yeah. how did you? How did that end up kind of coming to to fruition? So it didn't happen uh, immediately because I was reporting in Kiev and in Ukraine for the first three weeks of the war. I didn't get back to Paris until March 12th. I took my wife's relatives, uh, the women in her family, I took them out of Moldova uh, into uh, Bucharest. I got them laissez passes because they didn't have working passports. They, they'd never been, the, the mother had a, a working passport, but the grandmother hadn't been on an airplane in 30 years. And the two little girls, my little nieces, they'd never traveled, so we didn't have passports. So we had to get them to the uh, French embassy in Bucharest in order to get them laissez passes issued by the French embassy. I was reporting for three weeks. I wound up in Chernowitz. From Chernowitz, I went into Romania over the border as a refugee. And I went into Moldova, picked up the little girls and the mother, took them back to Bucharest. We sat in a hotel room for five days waiting for the papers to be uh, to be processed. I flew them to 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 uh, to Paris. I arrived on the twelfth, or I think the thirteenth of March, in Paris, and I had dinner that night with my dear friend Claire Berlinski, an American <gasps> former guest on this show. We love Claire. I love Sorry. Claire. She's so amazing. She's, she's rare, funny as hell. She's the rare total package. Claire Berlinski is smart as hell, brilliant, uh, world-class brain, analytically perfect, uh, gorgeous woman, uh, so kind, the rare journalist who has tremendous spiritual qualities, so bright, so wonderful as a human being, and uh, giving, hardworking, just a really, really, really ama amazing human being. And we had dinner with her and Tumas, Tumas Ilves. Although he says Thomas, but you know, he is Estonian, let's call him Tumas. And we're having dinner. I said, you know, I'm going to the I'm going to the Russian embassy tomorrow to burn my passport. Would you would you do the, the honors? And he says, Absolutely. I've never done this before, but let's do this. We get together. I call my Chechen. Uh, cameraman, I uh, when I was the head of Ukraine 24, uh, uh, Ukraine Today in Paris, I had a Chechen cameraman, a very funny guy, and I call him, and I I said to my Chechen cameraman, I won't call I won't call his name in, in public because you know he's family back in Chechnya, but I said uh, let's say Rustam is his name, let's say Ahmed, Ahmed Rustam, uh, that's not his real name, Ahmed Rustam, I'm going to. Uh, burn my Russian passport in front of the embassy tomorrow. Are you available to work? And he says, I'm available. And if it's burning the Russian passport, I don't need to be paid. I said, no, no. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really no. a great story. Uh, I'll pay you, man. Just be there at three o'clock. And, you know, he, he offered to work for free, but I, I did pay him for the work because one should, one should be paid for work. And so we arrived there. And the the Russian the Russian embassy is surrounded by French gendarmes who are guarding it, and we we did it from across the street. They saw us doing it, and they saw us with the camera crew and with the, uh, the president of Estonia in a three piece suit, and you know and a bow tie. It, Don't forget his bow tie. Don't be remiss about the bow tie. Yeah, it's 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 an it's no joke dressed for the occasion. We both dressed up, yeah. <laughs> the French gendarmes didn't care since we're doing it across the street. They didn't bother us. And so, 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 tell me about this. Um, what was was there any reaction from the embassy, or was it? 
I mean, my, my experience with the Russian embassy in Washington is what goes on beyond its gates may as well be in a different world, that there's, you know, it's a self-contained world and uh, they probably, they see what happens outside because they undoubtedly have surveillance of it, but they're not. Uh, did anybody, did, did it provoke any kind of reaction at all? Well, it's not every day that a member of the Atlantic Council burns his Russian passport wearing a, a suit next to a guy wearing a three-piece suit and a and the bow tie. Like, oh, like, I'm not diminishing the occasion. I'm just asking about uh, whether there was uh, whether there was any visible reaction from 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 the Czechists inside. Um, none. But uh, my my very practical and pragmatic wife went up to the Russian embassy with her little blonde angelic daughter uh, nieces and put put a, a pro Ukrainian sticker on the wall. And uh, two security guards ran out, uh, a Russian one and a French guy. And the French guy screams, Madame, Madame, say uh, entre dix, entre you can't do this, blah, blah, blah. And my, my wife is the most practical, pragmatic, even-tempered woman you'll ever meet. She's, she's, she's very practical, very pragmatic. She's not a person who's very intensely emotional. He, she is, she's a person who understands everything. She's a moderate and centrist in every way and she you know it's the war so she and she's very you know strong high strung because of the war and she starts screaming it at the french security guard assassin 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 um, <laughs> that's pretty great i really i everyone has their limits this is correct um totally this is totally yeah, this is wonderful. Yeah. I like, I love this story. A very practical, moderate, even keeled, even tempered wife who is a centrist and a moderate and a model liberal and just uh, uh, temperamentally most moderate person who doesn't like anything too intense. She's the opposite of me. I'm, of course, extremely passionate, uh, temperamental, tempestuous man. So, you know, it works well. But she starts screaming at the security guards, assassin, assassin, assassin. And the the French guard, he, he says, I, "Madame, stop, stop doing this." And he takes a, a camera out and starts taping my wife. I wasn't there when this happened, and she starts screaming in French, "You think you have honor, you low-bred mediocrity, taping, a, a, taping a woman and two blonde nine-year-old little girls? Where is your masculinity? Where is your honor? What would your wife you?" That goes over really well with the gendarme, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like being emasculated by it. Uh, and my my wife looks like a bourgeois French woman with, with very nice clothes. And she just starts screaming at him in, in the most perfect way. You think you have honor putting your camera in the face of a woman and her two little girls? Who taught you to behave yourself? Do you have penis in between your legs? Do you have balls? <laughs> in French. And the, the, the Russian, the Russian uh, security guy just looks at her with total uh, contempt. And my wife just screams at him, assassin, assassin. And they didn't like this. So, so what has the reaction been? I, I mean, there was a little bit of a bit of a news event around it. Uh, yeah. Tomas yeah. tweeted it. You tweeted it. Yeah. There was some attention. Uh, what, was the, what, was the, uh, what was the reaction? So the reaction's been very interesting. The reaction from the Russian diaspora, my friends, even even from uh, people who are liberal-minded or people who are wealthy, who are living in, in London and New York and Tel Aviv, the, a lot of them are uh, very supportive. Some of them have purse slips. They're like, mm, you know, Putin's bad, but this is really this is really kind of declassé. Amongst Ukrainians, it's been uniformly. Uh, you're you're a, a hero or you're a mensch, and it's very funny because they keep calling me my Ukrainian friends from back in Kiev or Odessa, and and they say first of all, uh, a lot of them say I didn't even know you had a Russian passport. I didn't really go around telling people, and B they're they're saying congratulations, but they say it in this kind of ritualistic way that in the way that people say happy bar mitzvah or congratulations on on finishing university or Congratulations on finishing your your master's degree or finishing law school. Congratulations, being a real person. So congratulations. 
So that's one thing. CNN and MSNBC and uh, NBC did pieces about this. And I was kind of a poster boy for the Russian diaspora who said, uh, no more, no more, basta, uh, aret. And a lot of people noticed that this happened. And a lot of people thought it was great. A lot of people in the Ukrainian diaspora thought it was great that a, a, a son, uh, a poster child of the Russian diaspora would say, no more, I'm a Ukrainian now. Uh, nothing from the embassy. They didn't call me. They didn't, you know, you know. So dumb question. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, no. no, mine's a very serious kind of question. And it's a little bit adjacent to this. So go. So years ago, I challenged Putin to a fist fight. This was long before Elon Musk did. And Dmitry Peskov was uh, asked to answer this challenge at the Kremlin Daily Briefing. He said he'd never heard of me. Um, and uh, I would not go to Russia today as a result, or even three years ago, as a result of this. And so my question is, when you did this, did you assume you are not, uh, you could not anymore uh, travel to Moscow, you could not, um, uh, uh, that this is, you know, in a very literal sense, burning ties with with, with the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know very well now that if I, I mean, I'm, I'm a member of the Atlanta Council and I was on the advisory board of two organizations which are on the non-friendly organization list. I knew very well that I would be tailed or whatever, probably had an unpleasant conversation in the airport. Now I know that I've I've pronounced myself to be an enemy of the state and an enemy of this regime. I know I will never see Russia again while Putin is alive. I know that while while this Czechist regime is in power, and even if he dies and someone of his circle takes over, but I will not see Russia again until this is all over, until there's a liberal democracy or something happens. It's absolutely the burning of a travel document and of an identity and of uh, responsibility to the state and of a possibility of ever setting foot in Russia ever again. You know, and I, you know, I've also, I've also made myself a target to the extent that if they want to do something, you know, let them come at me. Well, that was actually, so, so I have, a, I have a couple of questions, but like, actually, I'm just going to like pick up on Ben's question because I think this is like, it's like, a it's kind of close to where I was going. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, this type of movement against, not movement, but protest, um, I don't know, they might consider it movement. Um, <laughs> this type of kind of outward protest um, is something that we enjoy in the United States, but there has uh, there has been for a long time kind of the understanding, obviously, that there that like you know the tentacles are very very long, and they have. I, I mean, it's it's also a question of like how much how many fronts can they fight at the same time? So like yeah. I don't know that right now they're super interested in coming after you, for instance. But once things settle down in Ukraine and things get settled, like maybe they'll go and clean up kind of other types of messes or something else. And like, are you concerned about that? And does that kind of impact how you're planning on kind of conducting them? And I don't give too much detail, but like, but like, does that kind of make you concerned? Well, look, I move around so just my lifestyle, my journalism, my, my way of life. I move around so much, like, good luck finding where I am going to be tomorrow. I usually just sleep uh, in a different place every two, three nights anyway. Good luck finding me, figuring out where I am. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I, I usually don't spend more than a week in any one country anyway. And I have uh, very few patterns that you could figure out uh, where I am anyway. But, oh, listen, if they want to kill me, they can take, they can kill anybody. They're not going to be able to kill me on the, on the territory of the United States. And they do kill routinely people, uh, on the territory of uh, uh, of uh, Europe, they haven't, as far as I know, killed American citizens yet. I mean, uh, Russians don't kill anyone in America, even former even former Russian intelligence agents, and, and America does not kill people in Russia, as far as we know. That's the, the unspoken deal. I mean, that might be off as a, as a month ago, and they've killed lots of people. Uh, 
Georgians and Chechens in Germany, in France, uh, defectors, all sorts of people do get murdered. Uh, I mean, you, are you going to come after a, a fairly well-known journalist who's a member of the Atlantic Council from a Russian media family with an American passport uh, in, in France? People would notice. I, I have... Uh, I have some friends who like me and, 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 and care about me. They would write pieces. That would be an escalation. Uh, I am both, uh, uh, you know, at least to the old rules, too well protected by my institutional affiliations to be killed. And I'm not Kasparov either. And so I, I'm not personally afraid for my own safety. I, I'm more afraid for the safety of my friends and relatives all over uh, Ukraine. Uh, but if, if they come after me, if they kill me, that's that's life. Um, you know, one has to live like a Klingon. So, you know? I'm interested in your uh, uh, in your journalism. Your uh, your you've had a, a a quite interesting and and separate from this or connected to this quite interesting and diverse uh, uh, journalistic career. Uh, talk about it a little bit. Uh, what is the Odessa Review? And, and, and uh, you, you've referred to your reporting, but who are you as a journalist for those who don't know your work? Thank you for asking that. I straddle the fence between being a culture guy and a politics guy and, uh, you know, every every culture writer and every pure writer will always wants to be a political writer and go political. I write a lot for foreign policy magazine. I write a lot for, uh, I, I used to write more for the Atlantic council. I write for various, uh, places like the bulwark on, on herd. I, I'm tablet magazines, European culture correspondent. I love tablet magazines. It's a wonderful magazine. Tablet's uh, great. It's amazing. Yeah, I totally, I didn't know that you wrote for them, but that's amazing. That like is a credit to them that they have you writing for them. I'm the European culture correspondent. I'm, I'm a columnist. Uh, I've, I've written 200 pieces for them. I, I write a lot about Ukrainian Jewish affairs. That's something that I was well known for before this. It just happens to be very niche and less important now uh, before than it is now because uh, you know, you have, a, you have a Jewish president of Ukraine fighting a Russian president who's doing that demonification. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote a book about Ukraine and Odessa called From Odessa with Love. Uh, please read it if, you, if you're into culture and politics. It's very useful for uh, a lot of what's gone on over the last eight years. I'm putting out a new book about Ukrainian Jewish relations and the birth of a political nation from Colombia Ibadim in about two months. Uh, there's a lot about Zelensky in there, what Zelensky means as a as a world historical personage. Oh, there's someone else going on. Who, who is this? Oh, sorry. There We're are, bringing we, in audience questions. We bring in audience oh. questions, so audience members are interested. But let me just put a link quickly to um, from Odessa with love into the chat. Um, but, 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 but while we have you on the subject of Odessa, because I think yeah. um, this is um, you're, I think, the first person, with the possible exception of Alina Polyakova, uh, who's kind of a, who's been on the show, who's in a position to talk about this. In the, if you identify ten cities in the history of Jewish civilization that are important. Odessa is one of them. Absolutely. And, and, um, and I'm interested your like contemporary Odessa is post World War Two. Odessa is not so much in the Jewish consciousness. But you wrote a book called Odessa from Odessa with love. Um, so talk about Odessa as a Ukrainian city, uh, as somebody who wrote about it or who edited the Odessa Review as a contemporary modern Jewish convert to Ukrainianism. Okay, that's a lot there. Thank you so much. I think you really understand the importance of the city. 
mean, look, Odessa is just the city of the Haskalah. It's the city of uh, the conversion of, of uh, the Jew into the Russian. It's, uh, it's an important city for Ukrainian history. It's important for Ukrainian political history. It's important for uh, the Black Sea region. It's, it's a city where a lot of important people in, uh, in, the, in the world uh, were born. It is a city that produces some really interesting people who go off and do other things. It's the city where Zionism as a political project in the post-Soviet space or in the Russian Empire was born. Jabotinsky is from there. Uh, the first mayor of uh, Tel Aviv is from there. Uh, it's, it's a really important city. It's a really important town. Uh, still, I mean, there's still tremendous Jewish life, both uh, secular and uh, religious there. And it's still a city that uh, grips the imagination, even though it's living off of its past a lot of the time. It's still a tremendously important town for understanding the way things work, understanding security arrangements in the Black Sea region, for understanding history, for understanding the future, for understanding what a... Uh, melting pot Ukrainian identity will look like. So I, I really love the city. Peter Pomerantsev actually wrote the preface to my, my my first book. I don't have it in front of me. And he basically said, you know, to go from Odessa to Brighton Beach is one thing, but to go from Brighton Beach back to Odessa, this is the genius of the age, reverse immigration flows, and you really have to understand. Uh, well, Ben is oh. laughing, but I don't. I've never been to Odessa. I have no. I have no understanding for it. So I was actually going to cut. I didn't want to like cut you off because you were kind of like. But I'm. I'm curious. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, what is the? What is kind of? Let us. Let me. Like, let like kind of ignorant me. Like a little bit in on the joke of like what is happening when you have like mm -hmm. when you're saying to go from Brighton Beach to Odessa. I mean, like, I assume that what you mean is that, like, there is this this, this this richness in Odessa, and it's like a derivative kind of village, kind of like immigrant version, like. But it's also right it's beach. also going backwards in the immigration chain. Oh, right. okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, okay. Brighton Beach okay. is Little Odessa. Brighton Beach is known as Little Odessa because of a tremendous number of Odessans who settled in Brooklyn, in New York City. Many of them, many of them, became, uh, uh, many of them became very famous, like the comedian Smirnoff. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you remember yeah. that guy Smirnoff from the. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Uh, cool. Yeah, he's pretty cool. That's really okay. Uh, so Tom, can you hear me? Yep. Hey Ben, I really want to compliment you on your uh, argument with Marcy. Uh, you're looking a lot better today, uh, but uh, I just w really enjoyed that. I thought it was great. So get that. Well, thank you. I, uh, it was a good conversation, and I appreciated her coming on and doing it with me. Yes. Now, let me get to my question. And I don't, how do you, Vladislav, is that how you pronounce your name? Vlad, do you go by short? I lost him. You're yeah. muted, Vlad. Okay. Um, listen, um, I don't know, this may not be your area. It's a sort of a military strategy question. But I had some friends in Ukraine, and they are distraught. I mean, they are seriously just morbidly distraught right now. They think that the country is going to go into rubble. And um, they, uh, and I've been thinking about, the Russian pullback a little bit around Kiev and maybe more going to the east and stuff like that. And I was just thinking if the United States is serious, and I don't know, Ben, I can't get a read on this, about saving Ukraine. Okay, I realize they don't want to start World War III. I got that part. We've been living with World War III for 70, 80 years. Okay, but uh, nonetheless... Um, do you think that the United States should really step up the defense of Ukraine, like Patriot missiles, M1 tanks? I mean, really give them the stuff. Uh, do you think that would, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know, I'm not an expert on this. But it just seems if we need to save Ukraine, which I think we do, 
I think we, it's actually a moral and now existential imperative that we save the country somewhat. Do you think we really ought to, as a United States citizen, and I think you are, uh, step up now and really give them a lot of defense? Not offense, defense. That's my question. Vlad, do you want to get started? Yeah, yeah. That's a great, yeah, look, we're all distraught. We're watching our friends and relatives get killed. I have three acquaintances who were killed in the last two weeks in the arts. Uh, a, a, a Lithuanian filmmaker a, a, who was, who, who I knew, who, was making, who made a film about Marupol and became famous as a filmmaker about Grozny. Ma, Mantas, uh, it's an unpronounceable uh, Lithuanian name, I'm so sorry. Kvadrivacius. Kvadrivacius. Mantas Kvadrivacius. Uh, was killed in Mariupol, evacuating. Uh, Max Levin, a, uh, a, a Russian-speaking uh, Jewish patrimony Ukrainian, was killed, a photojournalist taking pictures in Bucha. A guy that my wife knew, a Korean-Ukrainian actor, a good-looking guy in his early 30s, 33-year-old TV actor by the name of Pasha Lee. He was killed evacuating kids out of Irpin. He was a guy who joined the territorial defenses, the territorial defense battalions. He was evacuating little children when he was shot by a Russian sniper in Irpin. I personally know three people who were killed in the last two weeks. It is absolutely horrifying when everyone you know, everyone you've ever met at a party, at a dance, at a bar, at a club, at a social event, at the, at the movies, has to run away to another country and you have to help them get settled when uh, you have to get your, your, your people out. It's absolutely uh, uh, horrible. So yes, I absolutely think that the, 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 the Americans should give the Ukrainians absolutely every weapon that they need in order to win this war. They are fighting for the security of Europe. They're ultimately fighting for the security of America. This is a, a direct challenge and a final challenge to the post-war consensus. And we need to step up and help the uh, to uh, Ukrainians win. I was speaking at a uh, at a Razum for Ukraine fundraiser a week ago. It was amazing. I flew into New York to give a couple of speeches and to help uh, uh, people uh, raise money in order to help uh, uh, with various events in order to speak at this fundraiser. And the guy speaking after me, a friend of mine from back in Odessa, a, uh, a port guy who owns the port. He's one of two brothers who inherited the port. From, from their father who built the port business in the 90s. His name is Andrei Stavnitser. Great guy, head of humanitarian logistics for half the country now, really doing a lot. He spoke after me at this fundraiser for Razum for Ukraine, which you, everyone should give money to. Please find uh, Razum for Ukraine website. Although uh, uh, the, the founder today at lunch told me that uh, Russian hackers uh, brought down their payment system. I'm sure in two days they'll get it back up and you'll be able to send them money. So my friend Andrei Stavnitser, who spoke after me at this fundraiser, finds out through the uh, through the webcam on his backyard that there are Russian tanks and howitzers and Uragan type missile systems prepped in his backyard. Can you imagine? He looks at the security camera on his phone and he sees that there are 12 pieces of Russian military technology in his backyard. Do you know what he did? He called the Ukrainian intelligence services and he said the Russians have set up 12 pieces of tech, howitzers, and Oregon grad system in my backyard. What can they do? He gave the coordinates of his rooftop to the Russian to the Ukrainian intelligence services, he called down an airstrike on his own house. Wow. Yeah, so just... Jesus Christ! So just, really? Tom, think about it this way. There's three ways to think. It's very rare that you get this in, in international or security stuff. Three ways to look at it, and they all point in the same direction. One is the humanitarian the victim country here is asking for something you give them what they want um so 
usually that's intent. The, the moral instinct to help the victims is intention with some other victim, some other issue. Second way to look at it, this is an opportunity to give Putin a bloody nose. If you think about it in very real politic terms, right? Your enemy, your, your, your adversary, you can bloody him up a little bit. Uh, those, are, those are entirely consistent objectives here. And then the third is the international order, uh, uh, you know, defending the integrity of the international order. For purposes of this show, let's call that the Scott Shapiro uh, uh, principle, right? And that points in the same direction, too. We don't believe in the acquisition of territory by the use of force. Um, and so it's very rare that all three kind of major objectives point in the same direction, that your humanitarian instincts, your sort of victim protection instincts, your self-defense instincts, your real politic instincts, and your big picture systemic use, use, right, all point in the same direction. There's one factor that counsels in the other direction, which is the fear of escalation. And that's a cautionary note. You've got to do it in a way that's not going to escalate into nuclear war, World War III, and all that jazz. But it's, it's a, actually a relatively simple situation in terms of the alignment of the strategic value and the morality. And, you know, these are, there are lots of things in the world, you know, how do you deal with the Saudis who you need for a bunch of things when they chop up journalists, right? These are questions that put your values and your interests in conflict with one another. This isn't one of those situations. Do you want NATO to be worth anything or not? That's absolutely really, really correct. There is no moral ambiguity. Usually in a war between two countries, there is moral ambiguity. I mean, it's not always, it's not always good against evil as in World War II, where where you have like a purely evil imperialist state that wants to take over the world and execute anyone who's not like them and, and make lots of other people to slave labor. That's a, that's a pure evil situation in any metaphysical sense. Those are really relatively rare. You know, mo most situations are one group of people fighting another group of people. and They both have their own moral uh, calculus and their own historical narrative, and they all have a point about whether they lived here for a long time or the other side lived here for a long time. This has no moral ambiguity. This is one country attacking a much smaller country, which they promised to leave alone, and literally blowing up from the, from the sky women and children in order to get them to stop, to stop resisting because they, they cannot stand the idea that there's a political nation that lives outside of theirs. This is a perfectly black and white situation, right? There is no moral ambiguity and our, our strategic interests, and by we, I mean, when I say we, I'm not, not speaking as a Ukrainian, Jewish, or, or Uzbek, Russian, Belarusian, whatever. I'm speaking as an American citizen, as you guys are. There is no ambiguity between our moral interests and our strategic interests of the Ukrainians winning and keeping a strategic buffer zone for, uh, for our other European allies. That, the that's, the, that's the critical point. If you say, what's the right answer morally? Yeah. It's that the Ukrainians kick, kick the Russians out of occupied land. What's the right answer right. For, the, for the international system? It's that the territorial, of Ukraine, territorial integrity of Ukraine is uh, respected. What's the right That's answer right. for U.S. interests? It's that Russia learn a very grave lesson here that, that Eastern Europe is not touchable. And look, I mean, uh, th those people who say that Taiwan or uh, other, other places in the world are next, if we normalize this, if basically, if, if the territorial structures that, that we've set up do not hold, if the post-World War II consensus doesn't hold, there'll be a lot more war. There'll be a lot more dead people. There'll, there'll be a domino effect uh, of uh, illiberal war, right? So, you know, that, that's obvious. The, the only interesting question of us three, and I, we agree on the on, on the moral and the strategic, is the is the political one in terms of not setting off quote unquote World War Three, which is the only one where opponents of arming the Ukrainians have any kind of leg to stand on. And there, you you do have to be careful. I'm not, and no one in Ukraine is calling for 
Americans to actually do the fighting for the Ukrainians. They have more than enough manpower and more than enough gusto and more than enough fire in the belly to do it themselves. What they're calling for is uh, uh, a, a no-fly zone uh, in eastern, uh, uh, a no-fly zone which, which would be administered over uh, uh, western Ukraine. That that's that's something that could be done uh, by giving them weapons on the ground in order for them to do it themselves. I don't I don't see that Polish or German or Greek fighters. Uh, fighter pilots have to actually engage Russian or Belarusian MiGs over over Ukraine. That probably could lead to World War Three. Yeah, and the Slovaks do... just the Slovaks just gave them the SS three hundreds. I mean, it's it's yeah. like there uh, there's these things are happening. Uh, a lot of the debate over them is more optical than anything right. else. The commitment of the West to Ukraine's being able to defend itself is very deep. Kate, we got a few more audience questions. I know, I know. A bunch of them are not appearing on screen, which has made it hard to kind of. Um, but Mike, talking for another ten minutes. I don't know how your timing is. You know, uh, we uh, we 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 tend to wrap on time. Yeah, so we wrap at like six. So we'll fit in. Mike Tolhurst, please ask your question. Hello. Thanks for having you on. Thank you, a long-time caller, or long-time watcher, first-time caller, so thank you um, and a, for that. And, and a long-time Twitter engagement Yeah, I uh, love it. With, with, yes. uh, with in lieu of fun and with me and with Kate. It's good to hear your actual voice. Thank you. Um, so for a bit of context, I'm a, a little bit of a dissident from like a, a, a kind of a group of folks who are sort of in the realist and restraint camp and kind yeah. of taking a bit of a dissident view. But I think that sort of informs the question I have in terms of like a lot of folks I know are kind of taking this kind of attack that the war is about spheres of influence, security concerns on border of Russia, what you might kind of sum up as Mearsheimer, right? Um, but I've heard a different dialogue saying that the best way to think about the, okay, so it looks like you've got thoughts on this, uh, where it's about identity, like Ukrainian, Russian, and European, what you might sort of say, like I, I take from people like Ann Applebaum or, or maybe something about your experience. Uh, did you have a view on which narrative is most helpful for like understanding the conflict? And also secondly, how does, uh, in, which narrative you choose to interpret it um, matter for like, you know, all sorts of other like downstream decisions you might have around the conflict? And, and thanks, and I will hop off and take the question. Man, I have strong feelings about that. What, what, I'm curious if they dovetail with yours. What, what, do, what do you think, Vlad? Well, look, uh, I'm going to give you the thoughts of someone who's got skin in the game. Basically, uh, 2014 was never about NATO. 2014 and, and the, the trade deal in 2013 that got the Maidan originally going was about economic integration with Europe, not military integration and not NATO. There was, there was never a majority of Ukrainians un, until 2014 or 15 who wanted Ukraine to be in NATO. And that, that's why uh, the Americans never offered it to them in 2008. Uh, you, could, you could read um, Ambassador Piper's memoirs about that. Uh, if you really want to understand the, the, the diplomatic history of it, that's all in Ambassador Piper's uh, memoirs. I think it's called The Trident and the Eagle. I, I, I did a very long interview with him for the Odessa Review. You could, you could just Google that. It's 8,000 words long. And he explains uh, in, in, in detail about the, the way that um, the politics went down on that. But it, it was never about NATO. It was, it was about the sphere of influence in the sense that uh, Moscow, in, in a chauvinist way, thinks that Ukraine is part of the Russian political nation and the Russian wider empire. They just don't think that Ukrainians are real people and that Ukrainian political nation exists outside of Russia. They, they cannot have that exist. And it's about corruption. It's about not, not cleaning up uh, the, the way that... Uh, uh, U Ukraine governs itself. It's about a multi-ethnic empire which governs by centralized authoritarian control in Moscow, not being able to live with a multi-ethnic nation that lives in a chaotic and liberal and democratic way on its periphery because it, its own citizens will demand better, better governance. So it was never about uh, uh, the Mearsheimer realist view of a uh, legitimate sphere of influence because NATO was never on the table. No, no Ukrainians uh, wanted NATO. They, I think in 2012, it was like 25 or 30% of the Ukrainian 
political nation that wanted to be part of NATO. I, so I, I don't buy it. This is about destroying the Ukrainian political nation, not about NATO or legitimate spheres of influence. I would just add to that that the, the, the fundamental narrative through which to understand this is decolonization, that the Soviet Union was essentially an empire. Uh, oh, Ronald, what a good way. To, yeah, that's a good Ronald way. To, Reagan, yeah, that's a good Reagan, Reagan. Reagan had it right when he said it's an evil empire. It was evil. And but more importantly, the noun here is empire. And um, as the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, the first colonies to actually completely detach were the Eastern European states that had been invaded in the, in the post-war era, uh, Poland, the Baltics, Czechoslovakia, which were not Russian-speaking, which, um, which were actually colonized. And Russia could absorb that because it didn't go to the fundamental narrative that Russian, there was a kind of pan-Russian speaking uh, uh, brotherhood. Ukraine poses a unique problem in this regard in that it is uh, uh, the, the ultimate seat of the Rus. It's where, it's where Russian culture sort of comes from. Um, it is uh, uh, Russian speaking, sort of. Russia does not acknowledge that Ukrainian is a real language, that Ukraine is a, is a separate country. Um, and to remove Ukraine from the Russian orbit attacks the notion, uh, the, the way great Russian nationalists think about what Russia is. And they have been incredibly brutal over a long period of time in trying to prevent that. And this is a continuation of that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, fun, it's fundamentally an anti-colonial narrative that's best understood by, I don't know, there's a pale version of it in the relationship between England and Ireland. Um, oh. But, oh, you but you have to yeah. go through for hundreds of years back before you get to the intensity of it. I, I'd like to, uh, I absolutely agree with all of that. And uh, in order to understand this, uh, uh, this theory much better, I really recommend the work of Sergei Ploty, The Last Empire. He compares it to the collapse and dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, which took 30 years. It was only over 1945, the final dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. The dissolution of the Soviet Empire is only concluding now, 30 years later. Uh, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, uh, Mr. Witt, you're a very, very wise man. You understand things very, uh, very uh, correctly. But it's not the Irish in relationship to the British and, and the English. It's the English and the Scottish. That's the relationship between the Russians and the Ukrainians. The Scottish were junior partners in an imperial project. They were also sometimes uh, equal and sometimes under the, the boot of the of the English. The Irish would be like the uh, the, the the Belarus or the Armenians or the, the Chechens. You had you had you had other constituent people in the empire who uh, were the stock of lower class uh, uh, hierarchy. The, the Ukrainians to the Russians are as the Scottish were to the English. That's an interesting corrective, and I, yeah, and I, I buy it. Yeah, um, do you, can you say a little bit more, though, Ben? Like, why is, what, like, made you go to the Irish in the first place? Well, I mean, I, I think what Ukraine and Ireland have in common is uh, that the relationship, that the resistance had to become violent in a way that just isn't true of modern Scotland. But yeah. the persistence of the relationship is... And the sort of junior partner aspect of it, I agree with Vlad, has a very kind of Scottish feel. The difference is that Scotland has historically vacillated between an independence movement and feeling part of the UK. And yeah, there and is I think no when... analog to that. Like U Ukraine, Russians assert 
that there is a Slavic Brotherhood of Nations between Ukrainians and and Russians and Ukrainians, even a lot of Russian speaking Ukrainians, in my experience, simply don't share that understanding of it. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say that I thought the reason you went to Ireland was because of the express and very like and the very like vocal kind of push for independence that Ireland launched, yeah, and, and, and that seemed like the easy kind of layup. And I and I get what you're saying, and then I kind of understood what he was saying in times in terms of the corrective. But you do have to understand that like Ireland had like Ireland continues to have like Scotland does not have the move for independence, but like Ireland anyway. No, so it's, like. Ireland, Scotland has a contemporary move for independence. It does not have the same kind of struggle that Ireland has, particularly a hundred years of 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 sometimes violent struggle. And you know, I, I look the all analogies fail ultimately. I'm all I'm trying to say is if you look at Ireland from an English perspective, you see well they speak English. They pretend to have this other language, right. but uh, nobody actually speaks it. And if you look at Ireland from an Irish perspective, they say we have a thousand years of, of our own culture that they've imposed a superstructure on top of. Um, and that's very much the way Ukrainians talk about. Correct. Um, and, I, and I think there's just some similarity there. What's missing in the Irish case is the genocidal, uh, the occasional genocidal actions by the by the. They would argue that the potato famine was just that. They would they would argue that there, there that there were genocidal incidents. I mean, look. Yeah, the, the, that's not that's not wrong. That's completely correct. Yeah. The Poland resistance is the Irish part. The the but they were not the Irish until the nineteen uh, the twentieth century were not within the status hierarchy of the British Empire on the level of the English. Whereas Russified Ukrainians in the Russian Empire and in the Soviet Union were able to achieve the highest levels of, of uh, leadership. Right. You have entirely on dialect and kind of like like accent or like was it like just like it was or is it was it was it background or like did people uh, like sorry, I like, don't mean to ask a really complicated question. The, the language the language was repressed. I mean, Ukrainian was uh, systematically repressed for for hundreds of years, uh, yeah, I mean, there, were, did, there were, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's like kind of a question of, ac- like there, well, we should actually just have you back on to talk about this point and like maybe we, we should do that, like. Um, yeah, the, well, the, the language issue is super, super interesting. Yeah. Because it's it was, kind of a know, language continuum that starts in Poland and kind of turns into Russian by the time you get to Kharkiv, but is, there's a lot of different shades in between. I, I mean, I don't. Why don't Why don't we come back? I will. Uh, uh, I will uh, tell you one other person. Maybe we can do another show just on the language. Well, there. You know, there's no language. Yes, issue. that would be great. We could also let's have do that. On, ben. that would be great. Like, like that would be really fun. To, Anyways, to mix it with the Scots. To mix it with the Scots, but um, we will. We have to wrap. Um, we will be back on Monday. Um, I do not know who I, I think I do know who um, uh, Scott and I have coming on, but um, it's not public yet. And we were having like, but um, it will be great, of course, and it will be at 5 p.m. Um, and until then, Ben. Well, until then, first of all, Vlad, you're a great American, a oh, great yeah, Ukrainian. Yeah. Terrible Russian, apparently, but uh, really we, love, great we love you French. for it. Um, and uh, a great Frenchman. I will not yet. But, uh, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to, to to be on here. I'm grateful for your interest in Ukraine. I'm grateful for your your good work. I followed your writing for a long time. I was uh, grateful to be asked. Uh, I'm I'm very popular. Unfortunately, nowadays uh, uh, area experts become very popular in times of war. I wish it was not so. I would I would trade all the attention in the world for the fact that I wouldn't have to get my father-in-law out of uh, out of Odessa next week. Uh, but uh, you know, having put twelve years of my life into Ukraine, uh, I, I I have responsibilities to the country. Uh, it's a great country, Slavo Ukraine. Thank you so much, and I'll be back to talk about language. 
we are going to do that. Uh, 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 thank you for for uh, uh, all you've all you've done and for joining us today. And until then, Kate, we don't have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, uh, we have these multinational stories of complex identities. identities. That shift in that response to, in response to whoa, I'm getting I got massive. It. I fixed it. I fixed so it. we have these complicated multi-factor, you know, identities that shift in response to uh, geopolitical events, and part of our identities are matters of choice, and we express those choices by doing things like burning passports. So uh, you know, you get to decide who you are. Or blowing up but, your own house. Some people. Or blowing up your own house. Or blowing up your own house, which I like. Yeah. Yeah, that was a crazy story. Oh my god. That's okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Bye, guys. Have a great weekend. Glad. I hope I get to meet you in New York City sometime.